uh, ancient Chinese cultures, a barber's tip means uh, wealth and fortunes. So some patient may come to me, well, I, I want a bigger nose, and, and I would tell her or, or she that, oh, it's not, um, uh, I, I don't think it's a very good uh, surgical goals. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We have a very special guest today, all the way from Taipei in Taiwan, none other than Jeremy Chiwei. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hi, Cam. It's great to have you here. So I'm just going to kick off firstly with the listeners. Guys, again, this month, our first month of season two is brought to us by Medhold. So shout out to Medhold. Thank you very much for um, enabling us to be able to present this podcast to more than 70 countries around the world. You might look at me and think, why do I have my scrubs on? So the reason I don't have my scrubs on is I underwent some elbow and shoulder surgery early in the week. So I can't wow. get my scrubs on. So that's why I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> Hope you get it well soon. <laughs> so Jer thanks, Jerry. Yeah. Now, let's, let's kick this straight off. Tell me your story on how you first got into medicine and then from there you specialized to eventually become a leader in Asian rhinoplasty. Well, actually, um, I think there are many good surgeons in Asian countries and, and I don't consider me as a leader of it. And uh, I think... Uh, for these years, I uh, devote myself in this kind of surgeries for more than 20 years. And uh, I also devote myself in uh, promoting the plastic surgeries in Asian countries. And I try to establish the system and all the organizations related to uh, this operation. So uh, I, I really like it. And and tell me, did you do training after you became a, 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 a doctor? Did you then specialize in plastic surgery or otolaryngology? Well, I, I'm an otolaryngologist in having surgeries, and um, I also uh, I, I'm also a rhinologist. And actually, uh, in, in my hospital, I'm in the third. Uh, I'm in the tertiary medical centers, and uh, I have to deal with uh, those patients with. Uh, for example, uh, nasal sinusitis and or sinusal tumors or or the um, frequent disease uh, like mm -hmm. nasopharyngeal carcinoma, which is uh, popular in uh, southeastern Asian countries. Yeah, yeah. We we had a great chat last week with Richard Harvey. He's also a very into rhinology. Um, that was very interesting. So. I'm, a, I'm my brother lives in Taiwan and he's told me about I've been to visit him twice with how modern your country really? is. So in your if you could explain to us, because we, we mean, we've got listeners from Central Africa, right to uh, Scandinavian countries. How does the system work in, Ta in, in Taiwan? Do you have a private health care system and a state health care or, or how do patients actually end up getting a rhinoplasty from you? Uh, I mean, uh, the way that the patient get me? Yes. Uh, well, um, we have um, national health insurance, actually, but uh, it only pays for those uh, who, was, who suffer from uh, traumatic nasal deformities. And for those cosmetic ones, uh, they have to pay by themselves. 
So uh, they may come to uh, my hospital directly, or they may be referred from other doctors, mm -hmm. um, from plastic surgeries or from uh, ENT surgeons. And how many doctors work in your department? In my department? Yeah. Uh, well, we've got 20 visiting staff and uh, 21 residents. That's almost as many as we've got residents in South Africa. So, and that's just in one, one no. hospital. Yeah. And, and what made you decide to go into facial plastic surgery? Well, uh, because I like these operations because it's a combination of um, doing surgeries and uh, being an artist and being an architect and also sometimes a psychiatrist, actually. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, another thing that's quite interesting, I know you've, you, you, Two years ago, just as COVID hit, we were due to have the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery Societies, and you were running that. Um, tell us yes. a little bit more about your involvement on an international level for the Facial Plastic Society. Well, I'm now the Vice President of uh, Inter uh, International Federations of Facial Plastic Surgery Societies, and um, the World Congress of this, uh, this meeting is uh, hosted by uh, varying countries uh, every four years. And last time it was uh, 2012 in Rome and 2016 in, in Brazil. And um, so four years later in 2020, uh, I, I bid for uh, the host of this conference and uh, it comes, uh, our dreams come true actually, because it is the first time that this kind of World Congress was hosted in Asia countries. That's brilliant. Well done. And where is the next conference going to be? Well, it's going to be uh, hosted by Dr. Roxana Kobo. Awesome in yeah. Colombia. That's great. And, yes. and tell, tell the listeners, what exactly is facial plastic surgery? Because I know in South Africa, for example, it's not really known, but in Europe and in, in North and South America, it's quite well known. Is facial plastic surgery a, like a subspeciality in Asia as well? Uh, yes, but um, not for not not in every country. Actually, in Taiwan, it becomes a subspecialty of uh, ENT surgeons during past fifteen years, and that's what I'm working on it. Because um, before uh, surgeons like me or other pioneers in Taiwan, we don't have this kind of subspecialty in the ENT uh, field actually, and but. Uh, that um, is related to historical issue because uh, in ancient times, uh, Taiwan was a colony of Japan, actually. Mm -hmm. And Japanese surgeons, Japanese ENT surgeons didn't do this kind of surgery, actually. And even nowadays, only seldom uh, ENT surgeons in Japan mm -hmm. do this kind of facial plastic things. And that make the development um, of uh, the subspecialty of facial plastic surgery in ENT department uh, a little bit delay uh, in the past sixty years actually. Wow! But you guys, you guys have to understand there are fellowships available in Taiwan that that even international delegates uh, can apply for. Um, yes, uh, you can apply. Uh, the uh, young surgeons can apply through the platform of uh, international federations. But um, for for the situations in Asian countries, only a 
few, um, not so many uh, doctors were were uh, in a kind of teaching center. Actually, mm -hmm. some were combination of private practice, and um, uh, the training system is not uh, well formed as those in the states, uh, like a formal fellowship. Mm. But uh, we have this kind of training systems in uh, major teaching hospitals and uh, some good uh, private clinics. Awesome, man. Okay, so Jeremy, I know we want to get into the topic of Asian rhinoplasty, but I have two questions for you before we get there. Sure. I want to know what was the single worst day in your career and what was the best or funniest day in your career over all these decades that you've been doing what you do? Well, um, funniest things. Mm. Well, I, I, I would like to talk about something like uh, a culture related to culture, different cultures, actually. Uh, for example, uh, some patients may seek for uh, this very special kind of nose that they want. Uh, because in in uh, ancient Chinese cultures, a barber's tip means uh, wealth and fortunes. Wow! So some patient may come to me. Well, I, I want a bigger nose, and and I would tell her or, or she that oh, it's not. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's a very good uh, surgical goal. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have to have some more communications uh, go throughout this kind of consultations. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, because we always see, I've got a bulbous tip, make it smaller. But that's that's so interesting. Right, right. Wow. But only for middle-aged guys also. Okay. Uh, for young guys uh, or young girls, this kind of situations uh, is getting less and less. Wow, eh? that's so insightful. So, okay. So, for example, um, myself sitting in South Africa and um, doing a handful of Asian rhinoplasties. What would your most important advice be, maybe four or five points that you would like to share with, with colleagues around the world when it comes to Asian rhinoplasty? Well, I think uh, there are three major uh, differences um, in while you're facing uh, Asian patients. Um, the first one is that... Uh, Asian in from Asian countries, they need some more augmentations than uh, reduction things. Mm -hmm. For example, um, they may not have um, good profiles, uh, but uh, only very very few of them have got hub nose. So many of them need to increase the uh, height of the nasal dorsum through mm -hmm. augmentations. And um, the second one is that. Uh, Many of the patients from the Asian countries got thick skin, actually, yes. as compared to those uh, thin skins in, in uh, Western countries. And the other things, the third thing is that um, the cartilage, the septal cartilage, and uh, sometimes the auricular cartilage uh, is not large enough for, mm -hmm. uh, for using the autograft that we need in our operations. Okay, well, that's, that's, there's a lot of similarity there between our African noses as well with the, yeah, with the right. not exactly. very well projected thick skin and little cartilage. So those three things, how do you deal with that? 
So let's talk about that first one in terms of an under-projected or a low radix. What do you do? Uh, well, uh, we, we do much recommendations in our practice. And uh, for myself, I use autologous uh, graft only, but uh, many of my colleagues in Taiwan use implants, mm. like celastic implants or, or uh, sort of chimeric implants that combine the celastic and um, med pores or, or pure med pores or Gordex or things like that. Many so of them do you use still, I mean, med pore, because often at all our congresses, it's like the most graphic slide is the med pore that is now protruding through the skin and what a disaster. Yet people are persisting in using it. Eh? Yeah, right, right. So you normally use autologous rib from the same patient? Um, septal cartilage, auricular cartilage, or, or coastal cartilage. And then uh, how do you actually, technically, how do you build up that dorsum? Well, uh, sometimes with a, a whole block of the coastal cartilage mm -hmm. or combinations of layers uh, with septal cartilage or regular cartilage, or sometimes um, if they need only a little uh, touch up, uh, maybe I will use uh, crushed cartilage, okay. either from uh, the septums or the auricle. Okay. And, and do you sometimes use uh, glue, fibrin glue as well? Fibrinco, uh, sometimes, sometimes. If I do endonasoplasty, mm -hmm. uh, if I do endonasal uh, approach, yes. and um, for, for some cases, it's very difficult to uh, have a, a good fixations uh, among the uppermost of the uh, graft, yeah. then I will use glues. So before we get to the thick skin, I, I, I'm very interested to know, preservation rhinoplasty is like, the flavor of the day at the moment. But preservation yeah. rhinoplasty and Asian rhinoplasty, does it have a place for that or not? What are some of your views about that? Yes, yes, it does. And uh, for example, so we still got deviated nose, uh, the bony vault deformities, and you can use those skills that, um, for example, described by, by Dr. Uh, Dean Toriumis, mm -hmm. uh, the preservation ways of uh, doing the hump and uh, making the deviated nose straight. And you can still use that on, on Asian patients. That works. Awesome. Well, that's good to hear. So, so tell us a little bit more for the listeners in terms of what are some of the pearls with dealing with a thick skin patient? Well, uh, the first thing is that you have to make sure all your structure is um, uh, well uh, corrected, uh, well fixed, and well established. Uh, by doing this, you can um, have a very good uh, framework of all the bony and cartilaginous uh, structures. And by doing this, uh, you get the chance to overcome the thick skin. Okay. Um, when we were off air, you were mentioning about that we do a lot of psychological surgery in many ways. So there were two things I wanted to ask you about. The one was, as, as a young surgeon, if somebody comes into the practice and they request a rhinoplasty, most of the time the patient's going to get the rhinoplasty. But the older surgeons I speak to, it becomes less and less apparent that you're actually going to get the rhinoplasty because 
they've now learned who not to operate on. So what are some of your comments around that in terms of how many patients who end up making an appointment to see you actually finally get an operation? And what are the dangers that we should be looking out for? You mean the percentage? Yes. <clears throat> well, uh, because um, I, I do many revision cases, and for those refer, uh, referred cases, about 88% will, will uh, go into surgical procedures finally. And for those for uh, the first consultations or, or uh, they just came to me uh, through the introductions of their friends or, or their families, maybe about 60% actually. Wow, eh? that's, that's a lot. But I mean, it's interesting that not everybody who comes to you is going to get the operation. Oh, no, 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 actually. Okay, then let's chat about this, the issue of the lack of septal cartilage. Now, what we're busy looking at an international study with Miguel and looking at a few different uh, ethnic groups around the world, what we find in South Africa on, a, on an African nose is that there's very little septal cartilage. But what I'm trying to figure out is that there's, is it just the septal cartilage that's less or is the bony septum also less? So we're doing a lot of cone beam scans and looking at this before. How, how, what, is, what are some of your thoughts around septal cartilage where you, you might have to go for a rib um, to the listeners? Um, for, for the first, first questions, I think uh, both the bony septums and, and cartilaginous septums uh, is much smaller in, in our population. Mm -hmm. And for the second questions, um, once the patient needs uh, much more projections of the tip, uh, but uh, he or she uh, has only a little bit uh, of the cartilage, then I'll think about uh, harvesting uh, coastal cartilage for doing the uh, strong support of the tip structures and, and to do the uh, in increasing the projections uh, through the septal extension graft. So that was what I wanted to ask. So septal extension graft would be your workhorse to try and improve the projection. Yes, it is very important yeah, in our patients. Yeah, that's that's, and there's so many things I'm thinking of as as we're talking about it in terms of training in asia for rhinoplasty do, are, are there quite a few courses available uh, i mean because we sit on the other side of the world i mean you hours and hours ahead of us what are yes. some of the resources that you would advise i know you've you've written some books but in terms of somebody who's kind of at the beginning of their career and they want to improve what would some of your advice be for them um do you mean in Taiwan or in Asian countries? Both, both in Taiwan and, and in, uh, in, in East Asia, uh, as it were. Well, um, in, in Taiwan, we get uh, regular courses hosted by our academy, uh, the, the Taiwan Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeries. And uh, plastic surgeons in Taiwan also um, have some good programs, actually. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we will emphasize on the uh, functional part by doing these kind of procedures. and But uh, in Asian countries, there are many good courses, actually. For example, um, 
the uh, very famous uh, Korean uh, programs like uh, the Asan Medical Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Yongju uh, Jang hosted the uh, um, Asan Run Plastic Courses every year. And it is almost uh, about 20 years yeah. uh, uh, from the very beginnings. And uh, the other courses like uh, the Rhino Mama uh, in, in Philippines, hosted by Dr. Andura uh, Yap, and uh, some other uh, courses like in Singapore, hosted mm-hmm. by uh, Sandip uh, and other colleagues. Um, they invited many uh, guest speakers from all over the world. And uh, they made it uh, an 11 days courses in recent five years. And that's really good. Yeah. And I think there are more and more um, programs or, or uh, conferences uh, in Asian countries. And uh, it's very convenient for um, people from over from the world with, uh, who wants to get familiar with this kind of Asian patients. You, you get them in choices. Yeah. Well, the, all three of those names you mentioned are going to be interviewed later on in the season of this Rhinoplasty oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah. So it's That's exciting. Good. It's really yeah. nice to see that. So the month, the first month of season two is the East Rises. And I, I really feel that in a way over the last few decades, it's been dominated by like Western surgeons in many ways. So it's exciting for me to be able to speak to you guys. Um, how does somebody who, who would like to come and perhaps visit you, is there, is there opportunities for a visitorship or an observership to come to Taipei and see what you do? Well, uh, the laws here, uh, they allow only observership, actually, because uh, once you want to be uh, get involved in the surgeries on the real patients, we, you need the medical uh, license in yeah. Taiwan. But COVID has been terrible in terms of locking down the country. Um, it's been really hard to come in or come out of Taiwan, as right. I understand. Right, actually. Yeah, so far, because of the pandemic, yeah, it's not easy to overcome this kind of situation. Okay, so I, I have one, my, one of my last questions I want to know a bit more about is silicone implants in the nose. And I have this bias where I've come... Again, it's medpaw and silicone implants when they want to show gory photographs at congresses. It's about this implant that's extruding out the nose. Um, however, there must surely, surely be merit in it as well because it's been used so much around the world. Um, and perhaps in our, our African population, um, there's a lot of requests for try and please augment my nose, make the dorsum a bit bigger, give me a bit more projection that possibly a silicone implant is a much quicker um, way of doing it. But what are some of your thoughts around that? Well, uh, it is very popular because it is uh, the procedures are, are cheap, actually, as compared to those with uh, autologous graft. And um, for the surgical times, it is uh, much shorter mm-hmm. while you use an Plant. but there are just some uh, there do have some problems uh, for example you just mentioned about uh, creating a projection of the tip with the silicic implant I think it's very dangerous because um, some surgeons use uh, L-shaped uh, silicic implant to uh, push up the tip directly mm-hmm. to increase the projections but uh, it will have um, 
very strong compressions over the skin uh, that covers the tip. And as time goes by, sometimes uh, it goes uh, like extrusions yes. or, or some uh, dermal defect is terrible. And uh, many, many uh, colleagues uh, try to use uh, autologous graft, uh, doing like uh, shield graft or, or cap graft on the uh, thoracic implants. But uh, some uh, still have uh, complications after this kind of procedures. So uh, in my personal opinions, I don't think that uh, using a thoracic implant to improve the projection is a good idea. I, I don't like that. Well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So the, the, my last question for you is, I mean, the Taiwan medical system is possibly one of the most advanced in the world. The way you guys handled the whole COVID uh, pandemic, just it's, it's, it's astounding. And I, I wish the World Health Organization would actually recognize you guys and see what you do. So in that context, my question for you is, how do you, where you guys are very technologically advanced in medicine, see the future of rhinoplasty going over the next, say, 10 or 20 years from now? Well, I think uh, in the future, um, tissue engineering would be a uh, very possible and, and achievable goals of our next generations. And um, also, I think uh, people all over the world like minimal invasive procedures um, much more than um, real surgical surgical procedures. So uh, some people here uh, in Taiwan or in Asian countries, they try to use fillers uh, for the augmentations, but uh, some causes uh, vascular compromise and, and resulted in difficult uh, complications. And I, I think uh, in the futures, uh, good fillers uh, with less complications might uh, get their place in mm -hmm. those patients who need augmentations. And also, uh, I, I, I'm, my, my dream is that uh, if there is a kind of uh, designs that uh, could directly change the framework of the uh, nasal structures, for example, uh, in before uh, some surgeons use a laser to change the curvature of the septal cartilage. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of designs could be um, could be um, a, a possible dreams for making our surgical procedures more more interesting. Wow. Okay. So the last question I want to ask you: When we are making a nose smaller, we may be deprojecting and we change the rotation. It's normally relatively easy to see your results on the table of how it's changed from your pre-op. However, when it comes to actually doing the opposite, where you are now actually trying to project and build up the dorsum and possibly build a bigger nose, that's the challenge. So when you are in the, in the theater or the OR, do you have photographs up of what the patient currently looks like and what your result is what you're hoping for or how do you judge that because it's so hard to get the science and art together in rhinoplasty to get a good result for that patient 
you mean in OR, yes. not, not in uh, Office? No, in OR. Well, uh, sometimes I use uh, I, some. I measure the height and the projections uh, with uh, objective measurement, but uh, many times I, I just uh, judge it by the feeling. Yeah, because uh, you can see directly uh, the very significant change after our procedures. That's fantastic. Sure. Jamie, it's, it's so interesting for me to talk to somebody who's sitting on the other side of the world, you know, and, and hear these things that you had to say. Um, you know, to think that a bulbous tip is actually a sign of wealth is very interesting for me. <laughs> yeah, so... Guys, from, from, for all the listeners around the world, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Rhinoplasty podcast. We'll be back again next week with a very interesting chat as well. I want to give a hey. shout out to Medhold again for bringing this program to us. And especially a thank you to the Vice President of the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery Society who's taken a Sunday night off to record this podcast with us. Jeremy, thank you so much. And I really hope that this year would be a fantastic year for you in your practice in Taipei. And I want to thank you, Cam, for your great enthusiasm about promoting uh, rhinoplastic surgeries and, and your great efforts um, into integrating the family of facial plastic and reconstructive surgeons. I really want to thank you for, for uh, the great job you have done. Thank you, Cam.